Hello and welcome to Renegade Mama. I am your host, Natalie Rees. Today on the show, I speak with Dr. Rixa Fries. Rixa's PhD is about free birth in America. She herself has also had a combination of free births and midwife attended births at home. We chat through her four births, including one birth where she performed resuscitation on her baby girl. We also chat about Rix's non-for-profit organization, Breach Without Borders. And we chat about vaginal breach birth in today's world and how it's nearly extinct. Rixa is a lively, warm academic who has studied birth extensively, but has also lived it herself. I really enjoyed our conversation. Okay, well, welcome, Rixa. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. Yes, you're so welcome. So, Rixa, um, you have a PhD in unassisted or free birth, as some people call it. Um, tell us a little bit more about yourself, what you do. You also a part are part a part of an organization called Breach Without Borders. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, do you yeah. want to talk to that as well? And tell me about yeah. your family, who you are. You know, what makes sure. you you. Yeah. I'm from Minnesota, which is one of the northernmost states in the continental U.S., and I did a a master's in American history and then another master's um, in American studies and a Ph.D. in American studies. And my two main fields for my Ph.D. were, number one was maternity care and childbirth and history of medicine, and the other one was environmental history. And kind of a strange combination, but actually they came together last year in our breach conference that we did in Madison. So I did a PhD. I was pregnant with baby number two when I graduated with my PhD. And I'm married to a professor and writer. So we've been academics our whole life, um, quite like that. And I worked for nine years as a professor at a small private university, just finished this year because I chose to dedicate myself full time to Breach Without Borders, which is the nonprofit organization that I started in 2018. Right now, I'm working full-time, unpaid. (laughs) I'm volunteering full-time running this organization. I do teach some of the breach workshops that we offer. So that that does bring in a little bit of money. But uh, unfortunately, COVID-19 has shut most of those down. So I'm in a kind of holding pattern, hoping for things to pick up. So um, at some point, I actually have a job again. That would be really nice. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I started Breach Without Borders two years ago. I also blog at Stand and Deliver. Yes. Which is, you know, play on words on that old film because I am a little bit feisty when it comes to, to birth matters and I feel like we should really stand up and do what we want yes. rather than letting people boss us around and lie down and do what they want us to. So that's kind of a the theme of my life. Yeah, beautiful. Speaking of giving birth standing up rather than upside down, I have a crazy story to tell. Do you want to hear it? About yes, how please I was born? do. Yes, I do. <laughs> So I was number two of five children. My mom's first was a really easy, unmedicated birth with um, a really wonderful labor nurse in Washington state. And she just assumed that the next baby would be similar. They had moved to another state, so they moved to Minnesota at that time. And so imagine her shock when she went into labor and her doctor strung her upside down from the ceiling by her ankles. What? The only thing touching the bed was her shoulder blades and forced her to stay like that and give birth to me in that position while she was screaming to be let down. She had no idea that this was going to be happening. What? This, yes, I know everybody I say, say, what? I mean, you know, you wouldn't think that that's actually done. You know, when we say, you know, the worst way to give birth might be, you know, hanging Standing by your ankles. Well, yeah. she <laughs> was hanging by her ankles. So, you know, for what it's worth, I have a little bit of a crazy birth story. Uh, he told her at some point after the fact that he, it was his theory that it would prevent hemorrhoids if you would give birth upside down. Wow. This was totally without her consent. She was humiliated and, you know, screaming to be let down and was not. So, you know, maybe not the most auspicious way to enter the world, especially after her really wonderful first birth that went very smoothly. And she was just assuming that the same thing would happen with the second one. So there's my slightly crazy birth story. And maybe it, at some point subconsciously pushed me into doing what I'm doing. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, totally. It's funny because up until my mid twenties, when I started my, my PhD program, I hadn't really thought much about birth at all, other than to just think it was this horrible, awful degrading thing that we had to go through and just suffer through. And I was really frustrated that women had to go through this awful thing, you know, probably picking up a lot of, a lot of the cultural depict- depictions of childbirth, right? Yes. You know, what you see in the media is, 
very far away from a life-changing, powerfully empowering event yes. of deep importance. Yes. It's just this horrible thing that you suffer through and it's really degrading. That's, mm -hmm. That was my opinion about birth. And I hadn't thought about it all too much, let's be honest. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's where I had kind of come from. And I don't want to say that it came from my parents or my mom necessarily specifically. I didn't even know my crazy birth story probably until about that time, but um, just things I must have picked up on. And uh, it's cultural, right? I, yeah. Um, and it's funny when I was in my first year of my program, I was talking with a fellow student who was pregnant and then had her baby over the Christmas holidays. And she was telling me her birth story. And she mentioned something that she wanted to have a baby at home, but she wasn't able to find any midwives. I was living in a state where midwife, home birth midwives were not legal. I don't know if they are yet. They might have, they might have become legal. But in any case, she couldn't find any, although they do exist. You just have to look in the right places. So she had a midwife at a hospital and had a really negative experience and swore she would never go back to a hospital. And I was looking for something to write about for one of my courses anyway. And I said, ooh, how about I'll write about home birth and midwifery in the state I was living in, in Iowa. And mm -hmm. I started reading books and I was instantly hooked. And I said, this is what I want to do. Study yeah. childbirth. As soon as I learned about the world of home birth and midwives and, you know, unmedicated birth and all of the, all of these things that nobody had ever talked about, I was sold. And I said, I want to do this and I want to give birth this way. Yeah. And I never looked back. So that's, yeah. that's really what got me started. Ah, that's awesome. That's so awesome. Yeah. It's sort of like the rabbit hole. It was for me. I kind of, um, started looking the book that I read was taking charge of your fertility. I don't know if you've read that book. Do you know oh, it? Good one, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That sent me down the rabbit hole and somehow <laughs> led me to childbirth and it just became what I was going to say before is like, there's this weird, for me, childbirth is a feminist issue. And um, there's this weird thing with feminism that, yeah, oh, it's this, um, you know, the, the pill will take away the pain of your period. And that's a feminist issue. But I think that's actually anti-feminist and, you know, the, the epidural or whatever. It's, I, I'm ultimately pro-choice, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, it's not celebrated this femininity or celebrated these rites of passage for women. They're kind of seen as a bad thing that you should get rid of rather than, yeah, embrace them and celebrate them and make it a ritual and, you know, whatever. But um, yeah, it's exciting, isn't it? So tell me, um, you were at uni, uh, you're with your husband and then you fell pregnant and you decided to have a free birth or unassisted birth for your first. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at that point, I'm fairly, okay, let me back up. So fairly soon after I met that graduate student, that was my first year of university, probably within a year or so we, I decided I'm like, I'm ready to have children. You know, um, we started trying and had actually some issues getting pregnant for a few years, yep. went through all sorts of infertility testing and actually even ended up doing a round of IVF that didn't work. Oh, wow. How old were you at the time? I was still quite young. I think I did the IVF when I was 27, maybe 20, 27. Yeah. Okay. Um, really young. It was, it was a sperm issue. It was not my issue. Yeah. That's <laughs> the other funny thing. It's always blamed on, <laughs> it's always blamed on the women, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah. So um, it's kind of funny how that ended up because obviously after we had number one, we didn't have any problems having any more. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was lead paint exposure actually. Um, Cause he was heat gunning and scraping known lead paint with no protection. So oh. I was telling him, you could really wear a mask, you know? And he's like, oh, I'm fine. And as soon as we moved away from that house, six months later, I got pregnant on my own. So anyway, I think that's probably what caused it. Yep. <laughs> uh, so backing up though. Yeah. Um, I had my first unassisted. And at that point um, we had just moved from my husband's first full-time job. I had finished my exam. So I was just writing my dissertation. And mm -hmm. my dissertation was about free birthing. Yep. So I was really immersed in the free birthing world. And um, I knew I would have a home birth for my first, you know, barring any really strong medical indication to see hospital yep. care. But, um, you know, I, I would have been willing to have a midwife. Part of the issue was that we moved out of state to a new state. Um, and the midwife that I would have had that I was actually working with as a grad student, I was following her around and essentially apprenticing with her. Mm -hmm. You know, she no longer lived nearby. And I actually started apprenticing with another midwife, uh, the only local one in, in my new area um, of the home birth midwives. And she was a really fantastic midwife, very skilled, very knowledgeable. I just didn't want her at my birth. 
Like yep. there was just something where I'm like, I don't want her in my space, even mm-hmm. though she was fantastic. And I love, I really think she's amazing. Mm-hmm. And that was about the only choice. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I was really feeling called to do it unassisted, partly because I was really immersed in that free birth world at the time. You know, I was spending hours every day on the message boards because I was doing my research and interacting with these people and interviewing them, reading their birth stories. So it was partly because I felt really pulled or drawn towards it. And yep. partly because I didn't have any other midwife anywhere near me in the area anyway. Um, you know, she was the closest midwife at 80 miles away. Yeah. Um, so it was a little bit of lack of other options that I really wanted, but it was a lot because I felt like that was what I needed to do for that, for that birth. Um, yeah. Yeah. Very, very independent and solitary. <laughs> and I just kind of knew I needed to be left alone. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't trust anybody well enough to let them into my space yeah um, I say that you know yeah Even absolutely my husband I, I kind of had to keep him out of the room most of the time like he would just be in the room you know with the door open but just like not watching me the whole time because I just needed to not be watched and yeah. just to be mostly by myself and he'd just pop in every so often and you know get me something to eat or drink and see how I was doing and then he'd leave and play his whatever he was doing to distract himself as he's listening to his laboring wife <laughs> in, in the next room over right yeah, um, but I just mostly felt the deep need for solitude and dispersed privacy. Yeah, you know? uh, how open were you with your decision to birth unassisted? I was really open about it. Um, in fact, I started blogging at that time, probably when I was about six or seven months pregnant, in part because I was at a family reunion with all of my siblings and parents and. They knew that I was planning a home birth and an unassisted birth I was really thinking about, and they were not so happy about that. Yeah. Um, especially, I was the first home birther. I was one of the, you know, I didn't have the very first child in my family, but I was, you know, one of the early ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of resistance to that. And I realized that emotions were getting too high. Mm. And I said, I'm just going to write about all of the reasons I'm doing what I'm doing. And if they want to read it, great. And if they don't, great. But I'm just going to put it all out there. And if if they care enough to know why I'm doing what I'm doing, they can take the time to read. And so I started blogging at that point. Yeah, um, it's nice to do that. This is sort of like a little bit about my podcast. I <laughs> have so much to say to my friends and family. And it's like, I don't want to put it on them if they don't want to listen. So guess what? Here's a podcast. If you want to listen, listen. And if you don't, don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I really like doing that because it allowed me a, a way to process my thoughts and, mm-hmm. you know, talk myself through what I was thinking and feeling and experiencing. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have the high pressure that a oh, face-to-face contact does when emotions run high. And I'm, I totally understand why my family was concerned. Yes. Home birth itself was a little new to them. But the unassisted part was especially new. And I, I get it. Like, I don't blame them at all for feeling worried about what I was doing, you know, yep. maybe feeling like I was getting maybe brainwashed and sucked into these communities, you know. I, I get it. I, I, I totally don't um, think badly of them for their concern at all, right? No, they but had, I just had your like best. I yeah, they were worried about you. They didn't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah, it's me too. Yeah. <laughs> And it's, you know, over the years, all of my siblings who've had kids, um, four, I have four sisters and one brother, and all four of my sisters, all four of us have four kids. Oh, <laughs> wow. Um, and, you know, all of my siblings um, have, except for I think my, my first oldest sister, her first child, she had an epidural, but after that, all of us had natural births. Mm-hmm. They've all had mostly midwives in the hospitals, but one of my siblings had a midwife in a freestanding birth center in a hospital, but it was a midwifery led birth center so it was its kind of own unit yeah so you know we've we've all kind of on our own chosen to do things away from the mainstream even if it's just giving in birth in a hospital but you know without pain medications yeah and they all are very sympathetic towards home birth my mom too at first was very skeptical but you know I gave her some books to read and she read them which is fantastic she's really willing to at least consider things and she's told me like I wish I had known about this when I was having you, I would have totally gone to the farm and had my kids with Ina Mae Gaskin, you know? So she's there. I think they're all very much, you know, supportive of home birth, even if they personally didn't choose it. I definitely think that's no issue for them. Yeah. Um, It's similar in my family. I'm one of five too. So I, uh, I have Uh four, four brothers. (laughs) So four younger brothers and, um, Uh 
Yeah, they all yeah, my mom said the similar thing that like she had had a hospital birth. She had a epidural with me, but an induction, but ever everything else was natural hospital births and she uh said, "Oh, yeah, I just never really knew about home birth and she would have done it if she kind of knew about it. Uh, it wasn't the thing or whatever. It wasn't in her consciousness or on her radar at that time. But then my brother's just had a baby with his wife and they just had a free birth at home themselves. They had a midwife, but then she came to my house and then went to the house after 10 minutes after. So yeah, it's crazy. It's amazing yeah. just how you, you open up other people's minds and they go, Oh yeah, that's not that crazy. <laughs> it kind of um, yeah. aligns with them ultimately if they think about it a little bit more or not. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, that's cool. So your first birth, your husband was on board. He was pretty good with that. Yeah. I mean, he was understandably reluctant, not about the home birth part. He was, more than supportive it was just the unassisted part was yep. making him a little bit nervous or wary you know yep understandably i get it you know um but mm -hmm. he you know i we talked about so many things and talked through things and talked why i felt this way and he knew that i had done so much research and i knew so much of what i was getting into mm -hmm. so you know he was very supportive of it even if himself he had to work through some of his own you know concerns understandably but um and i'm, I'm really lucky for that because in some ways I look back and go, that was absolutely crazy what I did in some ways, right? Yeah. Um, especially for my first, having never done it before. On the other hand, I really felt intuitively like this is what I needed to do. And it's really strange because for me, I'm, I wouldn't say I consider myself a very emotional or intuitive person normally. Mm -hmm. Like normally I'm so much in my head, you know. Yeah, you're an academic. <laughs> I am totally an academic, yeah. <laughs> unashamedly so. Yeah. Uh, but this was something that I felt on that really, really deep level, very much like this was what the path I needed to take. And it's so hard because I have this side of myself that's very much logical and science-based and, you know, evidence-based and, you know, based on things that I can measure or see or research. And this was kind of outside that a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I'm really glad that I followed my, that intuitive decision-making, which I think is probably more important than we often give credit to. Mm -hmm. It sounds really woo-woo, but that's, it's a part of our life in so many ways, you know? Yeah. And interestingly enough, it was that same process that led me to seek out a midwife for my other ones. Yeah. I just didn't feel pulled to it unassisted the second time, like I did the first, and I had to honor that. It was actually kind of a process to accept letting a midwife into my space. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, having to find someone I could really trust to leave me alone mm -hmm. and to my space unviolated right not in the sense uh, of a violent version of it because I wouldn't you know I, I I knew my midwife really well but that she would leave my little bubble of silence and peace intact and not just get in my space you know mm -hmm. and bustle around and interfere so we had a lot of really good conversations as I found the midwife that I had for my last three um, she was very very sympathetic and you know through her own crazy birth stories that we talked through and some of the things she went through um, which is a whole novel in and of itself, you know, I knew I could deep, I, at a very deep level, I could trust her to, to respect my space and my boundaries. And she, you know, I told her, I want a midwife who is totally fine sitting in the hallway or sitting in a corner of the room and just quietly observing and not getting in my space. I said, you can listen to baby's heart tones during labor. That's fine. But everything else, like, I'm just going to do it myself. And I don't need you except to be there and in case something goes terribly wrong an emergency arise, but otherwise don't do anything. She's like, that's my favorite birth. I would love yeah. to. And she did. And, you know, postpartum, same thing. I said, just visually assess the baby. You know, you don't even need to get close. You can tell if something's looking strange. And if something's looking strange, then you can come closer and check it out. But just leave me alone. Yeah. Excellent. She thought that was amazing. So I was just so glad to find somebody who didn't feel like they needed to do things. Yeah. You know? And how nice and is really that? Yeah. It's and just trusted that I, I was like, I will tell you if I need help. I'm really good at articulating myself during labor. Yeah. I'm not one of those people who is almost unable to talk. Like I'm very much aware of everything. Like if I need help, I'll tell you really yeah. specifically what's going on and what I need help with. No problem. And it was great. You know, mm -hmm. having that level of trust that I trusted her and that she trusted me and I didn't have to negotiate or fight anything. I just had my babies. Yeah. That's you know? so that nice. So wonderful. 
And that's what every woman deserves, somebody that will walk with them and respect them and leave it to them to make the decisions because ultimately the woman knows best, the mother knows best. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, so your first birth, look, we won't go into them in detail. <laughs> I have read all of them because there's not enough time and there's so much more that I want to ask you about. But your first birth yeah. was um, fairly straightforward, yes? It was... It was a textbook. It labor started probably midnight one in the morning i labored all night um i couldn't really stay in bed i had to move through them so i was up uh, most of the night kind of just sitting in the dark on a birth ball like putzing on the computer distracting myself yeah uh, let my husband sleep until you know six or so in the morning mm -hmm. and she was born uh, in the morning and now I, i'm ashamed to say i can't remember exactly what time I'm gonna mix up. I think probably eleven thirty in the morning. You know, yep. maybe it was ten ten hours total. Yeah, I think two you said ten. Of, yeah. Yeah, two hours of full pushing, like undeniable urge to push kind of pushing. Yeah. It took a lot longer than than with my last three, where they were yep. born much faster than two hours. <laughs> yeah. Which is typical. But it was very straightforward. It happened just like I thought it would, you know, the contractions got stronger, they got closer together. Mm -hmm. more regular you know nothing out of what you would expect for a very normal labor pattern yeah. yeah okay and so then how many years after did you have your second baby number two came about two and a half years later okay and that was we weren't trying to prevent or necessarily try I was breastfeeding you know it was kind of just like I was like I don't know if I'll get an, I'll, if I'll ever get pregnant again, you know, cause yeah. we didn't know if this fertility thing was a oh, yes. thing at the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so as it worked out, you know, just, I had the next one two and a half years later and then number three and number four were almost two years apart. Okay. So fairly close and regular. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And um, second birth again was quite straightforward. Yes. Yeah. It was maybe seven hours start to finish um, about half an hour of pushing. Yeah. And that one was funny because uh, it was on a Sunday and my husband, I, I didn't want to really be accompanied. Like it was early enough labor for a lot of it. I just sent him off to church to get me yeah. out of my state. Yeah. <laughs> of course, everybody's like, where's Rixa? Eric said, oh, she's in labor. What? <laughs> she's fine. He would just check in with me every so often. Um, yeah. And that was really straightforward, you know, got in the birth pool right about right about when my body started pushing you know because it was a little bit faster so I didn't have time to get it set up early yeah had the baby in half an hour just really really easy straightforward well easy is relative you know it's always hard let's just be honest yeah 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 I like to use the word simple and straightforward rather than easy I, I sometimes do that go it's really easy I'm like actually no it wasn't easy it was simple and straightforward <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I read something in one of your blogs and I kind of could relate to it. You said that something like um, you only ever get in the pool. Actually, I've never had a water birth, but I have had water in my births. Um, you only get into the pool at the end because you felt at times like a prisoner in that pool. Is that, is, am I misquoting you there or? I don't know. And it's entirely possible. I said that and I have zero memory of writing that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> I could be misquoting you. <laughs> Well, with Zari, I was in and out a lot. I would be in for half an hour, out for half an hour, you know, yeah. all during the labor and even during pushing about every half an hour, I'd get in and out. I never really stayed. Yeah. The other ones, I, I'd have to read my birth stories because I wonder how much I've forgotten, you know? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? The further you get away, the more amnesia you have and the story changes. Yeah. And... yeah, it's possible. And, you know, my other ones were also faster, so I didn't have as much time. Yes. Um, and I, my first one, I was just in a jacuzzi tub that was in our house. So it was a lot faster to fill. It just took one fill of the hot water tank. Whereas the big birth pool for the last three, you'd have to fill it and then wait and then wait another hour and then fill it yes. again. So it wasn't quite as fast to get in. Yeah. So yes, it's entirely possible. I said that. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> no, I only said that because I could relate to that comment. I um, had a birth pool for my first and yeah, I just felt that... Um, yeah, a little restricted in it. Like I wanted to get out, but then I got so lazy in the water because it was relaxing. And then I was like, yeah. oh, I can't be bothered getting out. And I stayed in there way too long, which I think was, yeah, not great for my labor. And that um, first birth ended in a transfer. So <laughs> I don't know, maybe that's why I feel towards that. Um, 
but yeah, again, second birth, fairly straightforward. Actually, I have a question. In your first birth, you didn't say in your birth story, did you have any prenatal medical care? I did my own. Yeah. So I had my own fetoscope. I had a blood pressure cuff. I had a measuring tape. So I would oh, do wow. bundle height, blood pressure, heart tones. I'd map where I'd find the heart tones. I, you know, weighed myself, measured myself. I have... I like keeping track of things on Excel spreadsheets. It just gives me great joy. <laughs> That's lovely. So I just did all the normal things that all the midwives would do anyway, because I was shadowing a couple different midwives. Yes. So I knew what they did for prenatal care. Yeah. And so I kind of kept track of my own information. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. have access to the, the urine strips or the protein testing, but the midwife that I was working with did. So I think I checked some of my things a few times with, with her equipment when I was attending did prenatals you, with her. Did you do scans? No, I never had any ultrasounds during any of my pregnancies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I could neither. have, I could, you know, especially when I had the midwife for the last three, but I just chose not to, cause I was like, it's not going to really change what I'm going to do anyway. Yeah. That's what um, I felt like. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't yeah. make, there's a few things that maybe it could, um, you know, like if the placenta was covering the cervix, that's one. And I think, I guess if you had a heart issue, but they were, you know, not risks that I thought I were high risk for and there's a risk with everything and there's a risk to ultrasound. So I was willing to take the risk of those kind of two things that really would be the only things yeah. that would change it. And for me, I was never going to have an abortion. Um, again, pro-choice for anyone that chooses that, but you know, it wasn't really going to change the outcome for me. So why have an ultrasound? Yeah. yeah. And I feel the same way. Like, um, and I also knew that I didn't want to add the stress of worrying about a potential problem that exactly. may have a false positive. Exactly. And I think that was a very real thing. Yeah. And I, I just chose, I'd rather deal with what happens when it happens rather than have months of possible worry about something that may or may not turn out to be a problem. Yes. Yes. I think Sarah Buckley writes about that in her book. And yeah, I was like, yes, that's so true. I don't need nine months or six months or whatever when I've found the problem in Vodacom. So yeah, I've heard so many stories of people being told, you know, your baby's Down syndrome, your baby's this, your baby's that. And then they have the baby and the baby's perfectly fine. Or even if it's not perfectly fine, what does it matter? It's best not to have that extra worry for six months and have the baby and deal with it then. But then I guess the other perspective is people feel more prepared. So I don't know, yeah. each their own. Well, like it's, you know, it's weighing risk benefit. Like there are some things that, you know, if you didn't know about ahead of time, it would be a frantic emergency if they have some, one of those immediately life-threatening things that you need care immediately. Yeah. But you, know, you weigh the risk of how likely is that to happen against the the risk of stress for several months. And yes, I don't fault anybody at all for getting ultrasound scans or not. No. I think yeah. both are entirely reasonable decisions. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So, and then your third birth, I was really interested in, oh, I watched yes. the video as well. So that was a planned with midwife, but surprise unassisted, um, mm-hmm. because your, it was daughter. Yes. Came, um, yeah before the midwife arrived. And I've actually seen this quite a lot online and I think it's really interesting because this would be a big criticism of home birth or unassisted birth. So your baby's born and she takes a little while to breathe. Talk to me about that. Yeah, Inga's was a very fast labor. Um, I was having pretty strong contractions most of the night, but I didn't really count it until I had to get out of bed and deal with them. Before that, it doesn't count, right? Yeah. (laughs) So essentially I got out of bed uh, probably 6.30 or so, 7 in the morning. I'd have to check my, my birth story, but yeah. it was really only two, two and a half hours of, of active labor before she was born, which was yeah. really fast. fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, she came out quite pink, eyes yeah. open, looking around, moving. Mm-hmm. And if you've seen the movie, you can verify what I'm saying, but she essentially fainted and lost color and tone about 30 seconds in mm-hmm. never made, never took a breath um and just lost I mean, she turned gray and floppy and lifeless looking and her their eyes just gave that glassy look like no one's home mm-hmm. it was it was strange because at that point i had trained in neonatal resuscitation because as a doula i had to resuscitate a very gray floppy baby came out born that way was not like Inga, who actually had some good tone at first. Yeah. So um, I had seen a lot worse and I had dealt with worse. Um, so I wasn't, well, first I was in the moment. I just had a baby. Yeah. So I wasn't necessarily running the NRP 
protocols through my head and running a timer because I was holding my newborn baby, but I wasn't overly concerned because she came out with totally vigorous and then essentially fainted. Um, and from my recollection, I think within about 30 seconds of her fainting, I started the first inflation breath, you know, um, resuscitation breath. And I would give her a breath. And each time I gave her an effective breath, because some of them weren't effective, I could feel that there were a few that didn't make it into her lungs. Yeah. But each time it was an effective breath, she would kind of startle or cough or do this and then kind of yep. go limp again, but not as limp as before. So it kind of perked her up and it came, she came more round with each breath. And I think I gave her six or seven effective breaths over the next one minute span. Mm-hmm. So from one minutes to two minutes after was when I was giving her the breaths and each time she came around a little more and would cough or move a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And by two minutes, she started crying, was completely recovered. Yep. Um, and I chose to put the entire video of her birth and her resuscitation online. I think it's really important actually for Absolutely. parents. When we say, what if something goes wrong? This is probably the most likely thing to go wrong, that your baby will need assistance breathing. Yep. And this is what it looks like. Yep. And some people find it very terrifying, but I think a lot of people find it reassuring that what happens when something goes wrong is you apply the skills you've learned and you deal with the situation in a very calm manner. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting because I also left up a lot of the discussions that happened afterwards, the people commenting on what they saw happening. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of, you know, most people who are being very supportive and positive and thanking me for putting this thing up, which is really personal. Yeah. But of course there's the people who criticize what happens. Well, she didn't dry the baby off with a towel. Well, she didn't start resuscitations 30 seconds after she started one minute after, you know, what about the NRP protocol? And I'm like, you guys, yeah, you know, calm yourselves down, you know, um, it's just interesting to see like some of the, the, the panic and the people who are criticizing me because I wasn't panicking. Yeah, it, but and that was the joy of watching that. It was just amazing. It was like you were so calm, you were so centered, you knew exactly what to do. And it was just, even afterwards, you were just so calm. And I was just like, yes, this is what it should be. Because I think you said somewhere as well, if this was in hospital, you know how this would have gone. Mm-hmm. It would have been panic and crisis, immediate cord clamping, taking, rushing the baby away. For, for what? For something that could have happened in a very calm and gentle manner right yeah yeah i live on the video that immediately after inga cries yeah ding, the midwife's assistant shows up and it's yeah. funny because she bustles into the room and she didn't know me very well yeah and she hadn't, she hadn't talked with the midwife about what i wanted because the midwife was still on her way and yeah. she's in my space and she's moving things and she's chit-chatting and she's talking and i just send her out i said i need some peace and quiet and out she goes i was like i couldn't handle it yeah <laughs> Good on you. And then the, the, the camera battery ran out at that moment. So that's why the video ends is we ran out of batteries. But okay. It's just kind of a, a funny timing, like of all the comedy you could get. That's yeah, it, right? Bing bong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So yeah, it was just so, yeah, I think um, everybody should look that video up of, um, yeah, you doing that because, yeah, that was just so fascinating. So fascinating. Yolanda, who I interviewed, before um, a few episodes ago, she was had a similar experience. She didn't do the resuscitation, but her baby did take a while to come to. And it's, mm-hmm. yeah, I've seen quite a few videos now. It's just fascinating to see that we don't have to panic. And yeah, the baby can, um, yeah, start breathing. Yeah, with very simple assistance, whether it's the mother's breath, whether it's a rub on the back, whether it's skin to skin, whatever's needed. But um, yeah, it can be a lot simpler than we think. <laughs> yeah. There's a really interesting randomized controlled trial happening right now where um, they're studying what happens if a baby doesn't establish respiration, but the cord is intact. Yep. And just leaving the baby alone for a few minutes, yep. as long as the pulse remains above a certain level, not assisting with, with respiratory efforts. Yeah. And I'm so intrigued to see what happens with that one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was talking to my midwife friend um, before this because I was telling her your story and I was saying, what, what what, do you think? And, yeah, she was saying, yeah, exactly that. Um, yeah, if we, yeah, leave the baby with the cord attached, yeah, how fine is the baby? Well, let's see what that study says, I guess. But, yeah. again, if we kind of try and go with the mother's intuition, and, again, I put a post up about this the other day you know that's the last thing that's ever kind of validated the mother's intuition but if she 
is doing what she feels is best from a place of being centered. I guess this is the hard thing when fear comes in and, but that's what was so beautiful about watching you. You could see there was no, well, I don't know, was there fear for you, but it didn't feel like there was fear. No. Yeah. It's interesting. Like, um, there wasn't, Yeah. You know, I, but I'm also not a person who panics. Yeah. If you know me, I'm like uber calm, Yeah. you know, uh, even when I had to resuscitate this other baby that was really poor shape, this was before I had official training, although I had read a lot about how to resuscitate, there was no fear. I mean, that's just, that's not the way I operate in, yeah. in those sorts of situations. So it's yeah. in part my personality, Yeah. but fear and panic are not very productive things. You know, they're good for running away from a lion, but they're not necessarily very good for helping your baby to come around. Yeah, absolutely. Um, why, why do you think she wasn't, um, breathing. I think you mentioned something about cord traction. Was that you? You said that maybe. Well, let me give you a couple things I'm thinking about. I mean, we don't yeah. really know what was going on with her heart tones because the midwife yeah. wasn't there yet. And I'm yeah. wondering if there was some, some late oxygen deprivation possibly, but she came out very vigorous. That's yeah. the weird thing. Yeah. And that's something you don't usually see. Usually they come out floppy. Yeah. Um, so she had more like what's called secondary apnea versus primary apnea. And it's a term that some people use. I'm not sure if it's a universal term. Um, I wonder if maybe she had enough mucus or something blocking her throat that she was trying to breathe, but there's just something enough in the way that she wasn't able to get that first breath. Cause yeah, she was cause really it, trying. You see her like moving yeah. her arms and looking around and really moving. Yeah. And you can really I, hear that mucus on her chest as she starts to breathe. And yeah, it starts coughing things. Yes. Up. Yes. I wonder if maybe it was something as simple as just something in the way just enough that she couldn't quite get her airflow and then she basically fainted. Yeah. Right. I also have a very distinct memory of looking down at her cord and from the earliest time that I ever remember seeing her cord, it was white and thin and limp like a spaghetti noodle. Mm -hmm. Unlike my other three that had a nice big fat blue cord for several minutes. Mm -hmm. I don't know when it was I looked at her cord, but it was probably within the first few minutes of life. Mm -hmm. you know, as I was either resuscitating or immediately after. Yep. Again, I, it, you can't see it on the film, so I can't go back on the film footage. And I wonder if there was something going on again with, you know, late during pushing right before she was born. I just, it was just very strange to see such a white thin cord yep. so early. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, there, that, there's that piece of the puzzle, mm -hmm. but we'll never really know since we don't have heart tones to go back to and say, aha, we are having late D cells or something yep. like that. That would going on yeah but I'm, yeah. Thinking, I'm thinking a physical you know mucus or something obstructing her her breathing passages might be a, a reasonable explanation for what we see happening yeah given her full color full tone completely alert being there and mm -hmm. then losing it after the fact so yeah that's my theory but if anybody watches and wants to theorize please send me your ideas i'd love to know <laughs> yeah yeah it's always interesting like that yeah. Yeah. Cool. And then we go to your fourth birth again. You had a midwife, fairly straightforward. Again, this was probably in some ways the most challenging labor. Yeah. And the most strange. It just felt unusual. Um, it yes, was, I remember you saying this now. Six hours, five, six hours, start to finish, um, from when I had to get out of bed and deal with the contractions because that's when I count it. Even though mm -hmm. I was having strong ones, like even the evening before, but they it was really strong, but I wouldn't really call it anything that was enough of an established pattern to be labor. For me, mm -hmm. labor is when I can't ignore it anymore. Yes. And I have to stop what my normal activities are and deal with it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, this one, the, the normal euphoria that I would typically feel between each contraction, that buzz, that feeling of being high and, you know, almost spinning on these wonderful um, beta endorphins mm -hmm. were very muted. Mm -hmm. I could feel they were there, but they were, they were much, much lower than I was used to feeling in between contractions. Mm -hmm. um, I was feeling constant rectal pressure, most of the labor. Yeah. Not as strong as you feel when you actually have to push the baby out, but it was there. Um, yep. And it just felt strange. It was the, actually the only time in my four entire pregnancies and births that I ever had a vaginal exam. I asked yes. the midwife. I said, I'm just really curious to know what's happening. Like I knew it wasn't going to tell me anything. I wasn't expecting it to tell me how much longer, but I was just like, 
I think I want a vaginal exam. Would you tell me what's going on? Yeah. She's like, are you sure? And I said, yes. She said, are you really sure? Because she knew me. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm okay with that. You know, and so I did have one exam during that labor. But again, that was totally me asking her, knowing yeah. it wasn't going to tell me anything. I was just kind of, I was going, this, I could just tell things were strange. Yeah. Um, you know, I was maybe five centimeters on the, upon exam. Um, didn't really tell me anything else and didn't change anything I would have done anyway, but I knew that. Um, the pushing was a lot harder and longer than I would have expected. I mean, it was maybe 45, 50, 55 minutes from start to finish of undeniable pushing urges. Having had two babies come out in half an hour before that, I was surprised. It was, yeah. it did not feel normal. It yeah. really felt like for a long time, the baby was stuck about two knuckles deep, you know, towards the end, she just was not moving any farther down. Mm -hmm. um, Cause I would reach up and feel inside, you know, and see what was going on. Yeah. And then the last five minutes, all of a sudden it felt like something finally came, she came down and out very quickly mm -hmm. at the last five minutes, almost in one very, very long contraction. Mm -hmm. In retrospect, I wonder if she might've been posterior most of the labor Yep. and spun around at the very last minute. Mm -hmm. I don't think she came out posterior from what I remember. Um, I don't know for sure because the photographs only catch it once she, once she's out enough that it would be hard to tell what what her head position was but i i don't i think she came out anterior i'm pretty yep. sure yeah I, I always i always kind of support my baby's head and do a little bit of counter pressure where i'm feeling a lot of burning and stinging because it just feels like i have to do that it yep. feels right yeah so i'm always feeling their heads and i don't remember her coming out facing me because i was you know on my knees kind of leaning forward yeah but i suspect there might have been some strange positioning going on mm -hmm. um based on the lack of endorphins I was feeling between contractions, based on the feeling of kind of mild rectal pressure, the whole labor. Yeah. And basically the fact that it was so much more difficult to, to bring her out. Yeah. You know, and that we felt very stuck for a long time. We'll never know. Yes. But that's my theory. It was yeah. very challenging. You know, I, I would think it was probably the most challenging of all my births Yeah. Wow. in some ways. It wasn't terribly, horribly hard, but it was definitely really challenging in a way that I hadn't had this the same way with my other ones. Yeah, and that's fully filmed. If you want to watch the last, you know, 20, 30 minutes, it's all there too. Yeah. I haven't watched that one yet, but yeah, I'll have to jump on after on this. The, it's just the camera running on the tripod. You know, I didn't do any of these fancy birth videos with the fancy music and the nice soft fades and different shots. It was just like camera runs. Here we go. This is me. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, okay. So then I'm really interested to talk about breach without borders. What got you really interested in that? Because you don't didn't have any breech babies, right? No, one of my sons was breech for a while in, during pregnancy. Um, that was baby number two, mm -hmm. and I was actually shocked by the amount of stress that gave me, even having a very supportive midwife and having already known quite a bit about breech at that point. But it was really stressful. Mm -hmm. um, but no, no breech babies. Um, I've always been interested in breech, though. I remember I read Jennifer Block's book, Pushed. Mm -hmm. It's an expose of the American maternity care system. I think she published yeah. in 2007 or 2008. Yeah. And she had a write-up of the first international breach conference that took place in um, BC, Canada. Mm -hmm. And I remember being really fascinated by reading her descriptions of this conference. And so in the back of my mind, I said, Ooh, if there's any more breach conferences, I'm going to go to them. Yeah. I have to be part of this thing. So I did go to the one in, in Ottawa in 2009 and the one in DC in 2012. These were all organized by the coalition for breach birth. Mm -hmm. So it was always something I was really fascinated with. It was all kind of in the back of my mind. And as time went, I got more and more interested in it. Um, I did some research projects so I could present my research at the 09 conference because I needed a way to at least get my conference fee paid. I said it's a lot of money. Yes. <laughs> but I, if, I ha if I was a speaker, they would at least waive my conference fee. <laughs> yeah. So I did a big research project. Great. It's the way I think it's crazy. I'm like, all oh, this extra work, you know. <laughs> but it was good. Um, and I, it was so fascinating to see that with breach, we had this mix of people from the home birth worlds, the hospital worlds. We had this professional collaboration that I hadn't seen happening in any other setting happening mm. with breach. And we had real time like learning and collaboration and discovery, like mm -hmm. on the spot, people were discussing and like saying, well, I noticed this happens when the baby does this. And they're building a body of knowledge collaboratively and internationally in these conferences. And it was such an amazing thing to see happen in person. Yeah. And so, especially after I went to the first conference in 09, the one in Ottawa, I was so fascinated that I knew I wanted to learn more about breach. So 
Um, so I kind of kept my finger on the pulse of breach for many years after that, you know, and I would write up conference summaries of all the conferences I attended, which you can find on Breach Without Borders website. Because mm -hmm. I feel it's important to document these things, which are otherwise so ephemeral. Yes. Because they weren't recording these for other people. And if I didn't write it, nobody would remember and nobody else would know what was said. Yes. So I felt this obligation to record it as much as I could. Um, yes. And to document this thing. Um, really, when I got started doing breach things more in earnest was a few years ago. My children, for the first time, were all four in public school. This was in France, where they start public school at two and a half. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I had hours to myself every day. It was a huge luxury. I hadn't had that for years and years. Yeah. If you've ever been a full-time parent of small children, you know exactly how wonderful it is to have long stretches of time. So I, I really wanted to know more about breach, and I felt like I needed to know the literature better. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, I'm just going to sit down and do a really thorough review of all of the literature. I'm just going to go through all of PubMed and read everything there is. Yeah. So that was my goal. I didn't know how long it would take or what I was getting myself into. But I did a search um, to make sure I would catch everything, title and abstract with a couple different keywords. And I just started going through one by one. Everything that was relevant to Breach, I would read the abstract. If I could get the full text, I would read it. Yep. Then I'd also categorize it and file it away in this kind of organizational system I've created. So everything I've looked at is then categorized and organized. So now I can find it all. Wow. If I have to go back and find it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, for like 4,000 articles later, I finished wow. that. Wow. <laughs> project. And I tell people, people are like, how, how can you be an academic? How can you be a researcher? And I said, you have to have a really high tolerance for boredom. I mean, yeah. That's all do. <laughs> Because it's so tedious. You're just sitting on your couch, click, 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 read, you know, read through another article, click, put it in its folder, extract the interesting stuff and write it down somewhere, you know, and just do yeah. that for hours every day, day after day, yeah. month after month. Wow. But as I was doing this, I discovered all these interesting things. I would find these articles or these things in an old medical journal, or I'd say, did you know that somebody did a study on this, you know, thing with breach? Did you know that this Russian guy did this inter interesting innovation that nobody's ever translated into English? You know, and so I started posting more about these discoveries, and it, it generated interest in the breach community. Mm -hmm. um, eventually, culminating in somebody inviting me to come to Russia in 2017 and give some lectures on breach. Cool. So that's what spurred me first to kind of start consolidating this into some form of a lecture. Mm -hmm. um, when I went to Russia and presented, it was a really early version of my lecture on evidence on term breach since the term breach trial, which mm -hmm. is now up on my website. Actually, it's there for a very small donation. You can watch the entire lecture. In Russia, this was a very rudimentary version. Yep. And I gave it, and it was interesting because I gave this whole lecture and the audience said, what is this term breach trial? We've never heard of it. And I was shocked. You know, this is the trial that in the Western industrialized and actually not even non-industrialized world for the most part, completely shut down breach where it was still happening. Right. Everybody knows about the term breach trial in my yeah. circles. You yeah, know? yeah. And to think that in Russia, they never even heard of this. Wow. And I, was, I realized we have a translation. We have an issue with crossing borders. Yeah. With knowledge crossing borders, with you know translation language barriers, with geographical barriers. Mm -hmm. um, and as I did more research and discovered these things coming out of different countries, like there's this whole body of breach maneuvers that they do in Russia that's never been translated into English. Wow, yeah. And techniques um, that everybody in Russia knows. When mm -hmm. I discovered them in the PubMed search, because you'd have a title of some Soviet medical journal and all you'd have was like a title saying a new technique about breach, you know, I'd track it down and my, my Russian friend would say, oh yeah, he's in all of our textbooks. Yeah, <laughs> I remember and you saying never, that. Never in the English-speaking world has anybody ever talked about this. And yeah. that's what first got me thinking. And I remember talking to people in Russia. I said, we need to start something that crosses borders, mm. that crosses language borders, geographic borders, you know, because we have certain things that are restricted to geographic practice areas. Like some maneuvers with breach are only in like the, um, the British colonies. Mm. Some maneuvers are more only in Western Europe and South mm. America, but they never made their way into the UK. And so anything in the UK tradition of obstetrics hasn't adopted certain maneuvers. So that's what really got me thinking. It was in the, now it was in my mind. I was like, mm -hmm. I got to do something about this. Yeah. So the next year in 2018, I was going through a really hard 
place personally because I was in France for four months with the four kids by myself. My husband was not able to get a work release. So he was working in the States. I was over in France by myself for four months. And all of a sudden I started having panic attacks and insomnia. And I'd never had anything like that in my life. And I was just having a horrible, awful time. It was terrible. But that's when I thought during that awful period when I was dealing with these things, I it spurred me for some reason to start this Breach Without Borders. I came up with a name, I came up with an idea, I came up with a domain name, I started filing the paperwork. So despite the horribleness that I was going through, that's when it got started. Um, I didn't do a lot with it at that point besides just get the organization going, file for my nonprofit status, you know, create a temporary website. But at least I got it started. I started doing some translations, you know, I got a team of translators together who's trans, you know, translated some videos for me. Um, And then I got invited to do some, uh, a breach workshop in Seattle in 2018, in the end of it. Yeah. Um, So that's where my first like main larger lectures came together. So they're a very early form of the main four lectures that now I give in in my two day breach workshop that I co-teach. Yeah. And because I got invited to Seattle, then I got invited to Decorah, I got invited to Asheville. In Asheville, North Carolina, David Hayes asked me to come and teach my part. And I said, well, David, you got to teach your part. And that's the first time we met each other in person and that we taught together. And we hit it off and we said, we got to do this more. We have too much fun teaching. Uh, and so we got a call and we said, hey, who wants a, me and David to come teach a workshop? We like teaching together. I really liked his approach and philosophy to breach. Yeah. And he really liked what I brought to it because I'm more like kind of the academic person and he's more the, the clinical person. Yeah. Uh, and so we complement each other really well in, in our strengths. And we just were swamped with demand. Um, and he realized really quickly, as soon as we put out word that we could come teach a workshop, that he had to close down his home birth practice entirely and dedicate himself full time to teaching because he can't do both. You know, yes. he can't yeah. do every weekend to teaching and take on clients. Yeah. So it was a big him he shut down his home birth practice and said i'm going to do breach full time wow so so we had a couple months of teaching almost every weekend yeah in in late 2019 so august basically late august through early december mm-hmm. ending four workshops in new zealand which was an amazing way to end off that wonderful teaching spree yeah and um we planned a few months break over the holidays for us to kind of regroup and reschedule workshops because it's hard to schedule over the christmas holidays and we were supposed to start teaching in full force in Europe in early spring and COVID-19 hit. Yep. <laughs> Mash, everything came to a grinding halt. Yeah. So we've had to reevaluate the direction we're going through with Breach Without Borders because we are entirely sustained by income from our workshops. So if we have no workshops, we have no money, and we have two people who are relying on Breach Without Borders for their full-time income, me mm-hmm. and David. So I've had no income we'll have no income until probably September at the very earliest. Same with David. You know, we taught two workshops in March, but then that was it. It was right before COVID really got started in February, March. Yep. So we've been innovating and trying to find some new ways to keep ourselves afloat. Yeah. So we have been working on filming and editing our entire workshop. So it's a fully online virtual course. Nice. That's going to be launching in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. We also, I also um, filmed and edited the entire Madison Breach Conference that we put on last fall. We had a wonderful Breach Conference about Breach from the lens of autonomy, biodiversity, and sustainability. Mm-hmm. And it was an amazing conference. It's some things you wouldn't think about in terms of Breach. You'd look at that and you think it's an environmental studies conference. Yeah. Our organizer, Cynthia Kiley, who's a midwife from Wisconsin, um, is a really big advocate of sustainability on a really large scale, not just for ecological sustainability, which she's into, but also birth sustainability. Mm-hmm. So we, we, Cynthia and I were the main um, planners of this conference and we put together those themes. Um, so that's also available um, coming in July as an online, fully online course with midwifery um, education units as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also are creating a shorter course called Breach 101 for parents, doulas, childbirth educators. It's basically all of our Breach workshop minus the hands-on training part. Yeah, nice. So you get a full education about Breach if you're not going to actually be doing the Breach birth yourself, but you really want to know almost everything there is to know. Mm-hmm. And we have um, within the course, you know, I, I say this is just the basic part, the first half. If you want to stop here, you can stop here. Mm-hmm. If you want the immediate, more advanced stuff, you can keep going and watch a few more hours of material. So, you know, the course gives them everything, um, basic and intermediate. But um, I'm really excited about that too, because there's so many parents and 
educators, you know, who need information and they need it really soon because usually you find out your breach and you're what 36, 37, 38. Yeah, they need it now. You need a crash course to know the information. So that's also coming in July. So I'm really excited because, you know, on a financial level, I have to keep this organization running. And right now I've been volunteering full time. I can't sustain that forever because at some point I have to feed my family. David has to feed himself and his wonderful dog, you know, um, and to keep it running, we need to find other ways of, you know, um, keeping it financially viable. So I'm really excited about this because with COVID-19, I think the reality is we might have years of restrictions on Mm. travel in the United States. I'm so ashamed to see what's happening in my country with Mm. the the lack of political will to actually make this, um, this virus contained. So the reality is we can't probably do a lot of in-person workshops for quite some time. And so we have to innovate. So we're still doing some in-person teaching in the fall, COVID-19 willing. We really hope to get back to Europe and overseas next year. But in the meantime, we'll have a lot of course offerings and you can take our full training, even if you can't have us come in person. Yeah, that's great. Sorry, interrupted. No, 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 I was just gonna say, I think that's actually, you know, to put a silver lining on COVID-19. I think it actually is a really great thing to be able to get these things online and like you say, have instant access for people that need it um, straight away rather than waiting for an in-person workshop or a conference or whatever. So I think, you know, it's a blessing in disguise as they say, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And we just finished updating our website. Um, Rather, I should say I finished updating it. I had to learn how to make a website. (laughs) Yeah. Fortunately, they're not so hard to do nowadays, but we just released our new website about two weeks ago. So we have everything under our one umbrella now, our breach workshops, we have our online breach courses, we have all of our resources and information and translations and statistics and infographics, it's all there. And it's such an amazing place to send parents, to send providers, educate breach-proof videos, we have instructions on maneuvers. I mean, everything you want to know is now in one place. And, you know, we hope to continue adding content to it and make it a really useful resource for anybody who needs to learn about breach. That's really cool. What's um over your period of studying breach, what's the most interesting things or beneficial things that you've learned? Hmm. I would say that I've learned a really deep appreciation for understanding the, the physiology and the mechanics of how this works because it's, it's really distinct mm-hmm. and it follows a very, very recognizable, predictable pattern. Mm-hmm. And the beautiful thing with breach is that you see the process of birth unfolding in front of your eyes. It's all there. Unlike a cephalic birth where the entire process is almost hidden until the head comes out, then you see a little bit of rotation and baby doing a few things. But by that point, it's almost done. Yeah. So breach is... It's scary for people, but in some ways it gives you so much more information than you would ever get from a head down birth because Mm -hmm. you watch what the baby is doing and you see so much of the baby as it's coming out. And from what the baby is doing on the outside, it tells you what's happening in the inside and you can really read the baby like a book. It tells you exactly what's happening Mm -hmm. and you can read whether there's going to be a problem with an arm or a shoulder Mm -hmm. and you can tell what shoulder it's going to be and you can see the baby as it tries to wiggle itself out. So it's a really beautiful thing because there's so much information and, and feedback that you get in a breech birth that you don't actually get in a cephalic birth. Mm. And in some ways, I think people should use that as a way to decrease their fear because there's so much more information um, that they as a provider can have as they attend a breech birth compared yeah. to a head down birth, you know. Do you know the stats on, are there more breech births these days? Are they on the rise or are they steady or I don't know. I'm just interested to know. I don't think I've seen anything indicating that it's changed. There is some, a little bit of regional variation sometimes in the reported rates of breech presentation at term, but it's pretty consistent. Um, That would be an interesting question. I haven't been tracking that, to be honest. You know, I've only kind of gone through the articles and, and put them in their respective folders and then left that part alone as far as rates of presentation. Yeah. So I can't give you much more of an answer, but I think it's a really interesting question. Yeah, it was Maybe interesting. COVID-19, for example, changed breach presentation rates. I don't know. Yeah, well, I was talking to Robin, not to Robin Lim. I went to a speech with Robin Lim and um, conference thing, and she was saying that when she was working in the refugee camps that the rate of breach went through the roof. She'd never seen it so high, and she was – 
uh, linking that to the stress of, yeah, I guess being displaced people living in refugee camps, losing their homes. I don't know. What do you think about that? I think it's entirely possible. I mean, you know, we, we know sometimes what causes breach presentation, but a lot of the time we still don't know why. Yes. You know, um, if we can rule out like uterine anomalies, you know, yep. and the maternal pelvic structure or uterine structure, there's still a lot of other reasons. Sometimes, it, you know, it's neurological that there's like a neurological deficit. But there's a lot of babies who are not neurologically compromised that are breached. Yeah. So I, w I would not be surprised at all to find that there's an aspect with maternal stress and breach presentation. Yeah. Um, certainly there have been more shocking things in the world than the fact that the baby might alter its position depending on the, the stress it's sensing from its mother. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I, um, I just thought that was an interesting point of view from her, but, um, yeah, cool. I think, uh, we'll wrap it up soon, but is there anything else you want to say? Or oh, yeah, you've been, yes, yeah, so interesting to talk to. <laughs> Thank you. Can I just put a little plug in for our nonprofit and a fundraiser yes. that we're doing right now? Yes, so, please. Um, yeah. If you go to Breach Without Borders, there's links to a fundraiser called Reteach Breach. Mm -hmm. And we started this last year when David and I wanted to start teaching and we wanted to bring these really beautiful simulators for our workshops to teach with. And we've raised 21,000 out of the $24,000 that we need to purchase the two of them. We actually paid for the rest with our own money. So we're, we're pleading for help to help raise the rest of the funds so that I can actually pay me, myself and David back for these. Yeah. But we're, um, we're raising funds for these amazing Sophie and her mom simulators. They're actually made in Australia by oh, a small cool. company that makes them. And they're, of course, made to be on their backs like any obstetric simulator. But David engineered a way to turn them over so they're on their hands and knees. Nice. So we can teach upright physiological breach. Yes. So if you go to Reteach Breach, it's on a fundraiser on the Chuffed um, fundraising platform. You can donate and get some fun perks if you want some perks. There's some videos that we have. There's some other different things that we offer as well. But if you want to support Breach, another great way to support it is as soon as we have our online courses, take one of our classes. All of the money goes right towards Breach Without Borders. If you're in the U.S., it's tax deductible as a donation. But that's the best way. If you like what we're doing, keep us alive by taking a workshop or taking one of our classes. We would be thrilled if you would like to do that. Absolutely. I'll put that in the show notes, the links to that for um, everyone so they can click straight on through to it. <laughs> Yeah, that's so cool. Um, the other thing I was going to say is, which I think I know the answer to, but with breech birth, obviously the rates of natural, well, like vaginal breech birth are dropping, right? Because nobody's necessarily trained in it anymore. Is that right? It's nearly extinct in most countries. Let's just put it that way. Um, yeah. I was really shocked actually how high the cesarean section rate was even before the term breech trial. For example, in the US, the breech C-section rate into the, in the year 2000 was like 83%. Wow. So the Turnbridge trial made that go up to almost 100%, but people have largely decided even before the Turnbridge trial that cesarean section was the way to go, which is really a shame because that was a non-evidence-based decision, but mm -hmm. it's really hard to reverse it. Um, there are some places that are seeing a rise in vaginal breach rates where, you know, a certain center, a lot of these are happening in Europe or other places where um, convinced by the research that's come out since the term breach trial and convinced that it's really important not to do unconsented cesarean sections because that's usually illegal and unethical. Yes. <laughs> the only other option is to offer vaginal breach birth. And especially with centers that are retraining and physiological approaches, approaches, we've had some places rapidly adopt breach and change from, you know, universal cesarean section to a fairly high vaginal breach birth rate. It's harder to probably make this happen in the U.S., which is such a litigious culture where malpractice rules everything, where there's yeah. so much fear. But I'm convinced that if we really want to make something happen, we can make it happen. Absolutely. I mean, let's just see what COVID-19 did to global culture. We mm. shut our whole world down in most countries for a few months. More yes. Than us. Yes. You know, I would never have imagined something like that happening a year ago. Exactly. And I was, you know, going into full quarantine in France for a few months and you just do it. Yeah. If there's a, you know, if there's a strong enough motivation, it's going to happen. And so I'm a little more of the mind, like, let's just assume that we are actually able to make change rather mm -hmm. than just giving up on it. You know, yeah. I know it's a, a little bit of a, a lot of an uphill battle, but I'm like, if, if I don't do it, nobody's going to do it. So I'm just going to do it. That's kind of my approach. So I'm going to start that nonprofit. I'm going to start training. Like, you're awesome. You know? <laughs> I mean, I'm lucky that I am married to somebody who has a job because I could not have done this without 
somebody else supporting me financially. And it's a privilege to come from that. You know, um, I'll be honest, I couldn't have done this had I not had that. I'm really lucky that I, I have somebody that can sustain me financially until Reach Without Borders is in the position to do so. And I'm, I'm happy that I've been able to donate my time so far. And in the future, I'm hopeful that I can actually make this financially um, sustainable, just like we want to make Bridgeport sustainable. Yes. I hate having to be the business person on things, but you know, let's be honest, like I can only keep doing this if it's a model that pays the bills and that pays David, for example, to continue working for us. Yep. So, um, but back to breached rates though, I really think that we need to have hospitals and healthcare providers hearing from women day after day, why aren't you doing breach? Why aren't you doing breach? I want breach as an option. It's not acceptable to not allow that option. It's not acceptable to force me to have surgery. Women over and over have to make their voices heard so that it is considered culturally unacceptable to force another woman into surgery. Absolutely. It's going to have to happen. Yes. It starts with us, us women demanding what we need. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Well, uh, Rixie, you, yeah, you are amazing. You're very knowledgeable. You are, yeah, have some great life experience, but great academic experience as well. So I really loved, um, yeah, hearing about it all. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. It was fun to revisit my birth stories. I haven't talked about them for a while, so. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Renegade Mama podcast. That's all for today. But if you would like to connect with me, I am on Facebook as The Renegade Mama Podcast or on Insta as The underscore Renegade underscore Mama. You can also visit me on my new website, therenegademama.co. And there you'll be able to find out more information about the show, our latest birthing classes and much more. The Renegade Mama is all about following your intuition, not the institution. We are sovereign. We are free. If you like the Renegade Mama podcast, then leave a review. You can do so on iTunes or our Facebook page. The Renegade Mama is released weekly on both Apple iTunes, Spotify, our website, or wherever you get your podcasts.